Welcome to Murder in the Black with Steph and MB. Welcome back to Murder in the Black. It is your host, Steph. And I'm MD. And we are back for two, not one, but two dose. Dose episodes because we were missing an action list last week, you know. Yes, we were. So, I mean, listen, these summer schedules are not. I thought that they would be easier. Yeah, no. But honestly, my type A personality just does not allow for this, like, no structure, wake up, like, I can't, I need routine, I need structure, I thrive in that space, so. Yeah, I mean, but here we are. Here we are, and we're back, and we're ready to give you And we're you ready, and we're going to keep this train stories. moving. So, we picked out, MD picked out a case, I picked out a case, and we're just going to go and tell you guys what we know about the case, and then hopefully be able to sum up some type of takeaway at the end. Right. Well, and the reason just for you to know why we chose to is because with the missing cases, right, there's not a lot of resolve. And so they tend to be quicker, like they tend to be a quicker story. So we were like, we didn't want to jip you. We wanted to. Right. We need we need y'all to get the full entree. So here we go. So grab your coffee if it's the morning or your wine if it's the evening. But either way, let's get into it. Let's get into it. So our story is about Shelton Sanders. And I've I've entitled this episode, No Peace. So Shelton was from Rembrandt, South Carolina. Um, He was actually studying to become an administrative information management um, computer programmer. So like that was a handful for me to say, as a matter of fact, but... He basically was in tech before tech was tech, in my opinion, right? So that was 2001. We're in 2001. We're in the summer of 2001. And he was attending University of South Carolina um, school. And he was just a semester away from actually graduating. And according to his mother, he had big dreams of owning his own consulting business uh, firm as a computer programmer. He was looking forward to getting married and having a lot of children and even raising cattle, according to his sister. That's very unique. Yeah, he was like yeah. a country boy, like slash a nerd. I'm here for it. My yeah. husband's like that. Yes. So he actually worked on campus in their neuropsychiatry um, department um, in the School of Medicine. So he would go to school and then go to work. So on June 19, 2021, Shelton went about his normal schedule. He would commute from Brimbert, where he was staying with his parents, from Sumner County, County is where that was, to his school. And then he would go to work in Richland County. So we're dealing with two counties here. That day, he attended classes at USC Columbia. He then went to work at the medical school. So pretty much everything about his day was pretty normal. So before driving home, Shelton had plans to reserve um, some hotel rooms in Columbia for a bachelor party. His best friend was getting married. And so he was in charge of making sure that everything went smoothly because he was the best man. You know, like he had to get the party started. Yeah, he had a job. Man, he was making sure. 
You got done. Exactly. Now, his former college roommate, Mark Richardson, volunteered to go with him to these various different hotels to help him reserve rooms. And he also picked up his girlfriend some flowers. Isn't that sweet? So sweet. So romantic. So between 8 and 9 p.m., Shelton actually called his parents to let them know that he would be leaving soon from work and that he would be home actually later than than usual because he had some things to, to do, right? So the first place that Shelton visits or the first hotel that he visits um, is around 9.30, okay, around 9.30, and it's at Wesley Inn Suites. So he goes there, he's seen going in there, he reserves the hotel, and goes to another hotel, which is the Embassy Suites in Columbia, South Carolina. This is around 9.51, around 10-ish. Now, this is the last official sighting of the evening before he just would seem to be just vanished. Now, later that night, Shelton actually goes and drops Mark off at his home in Olympia or on Olympia Avenue in Columbia. And this would be about 11 to 1130. Now, Shelton's father actually like remembered that or recounts, I should say, he woke up and having this like very vivid dream of his son screaming and it jolted him from his sleep. And it was about 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. He immediately gets up. He's so bothered that he, you know, goes to the driveway to see if Shelton has made it home. Shelton has not made it home. And it's the early morning of June 20th. And he just thinks, you know, you know how you just say, you know, oh, that must just be, I don't know why I'm thinking that. You know, you kind of just dust the feeling off. But obviously, this turned into what would be Shelton's father's worst nightmare. Yes. Um, At this point, Shelton is missing. His family and friends are looking for him, or I would definitely say his family is looking for him, his family and friends. And they are trying to figure out where Shelton is. It's not like him. As Steph has said, Shelton is very communicative about where he is, his whereabouts. He told his family what time that they should be expecting him. And so to not have him come home definitely raised red flags and shot off alarms. And so his family and friends start to desperately try to locate where Shelton is. And of course, they're trying to get the police involved. The good thing here is that William Sanders, Shelton's father, is a magistrate judge. And so he's able to pull a little bit of strings and maybe get the police involved earlier than Maybe some of us lay people would be able to. But he also knows what he should be doing to investigate. So he calls Mark, you know, who he knows Shelton should have been with. And he's hoping that Mark can, like, maybe just shed some insight on what happened the night that, you know, Shelton went missing. But Mark was very snappy on the phone to the point, guys, that he's, like, cursing at Shelton's father. Like, Like, wait a minute. Yeah. Like, at basic questions, too. Like, what happened? And he's like going off. And so much and so that, you know, Shelton's father, William, just is like, let me just get off the phone with him because, you know, I'm trying to find my son. He's not helping. He thought it was really odd, but he just felt like, listen, I got to keep doing what I keep need to do. Keep the train moving. Right. We got to keep this going. So he gets off the phone with Mark and 
the next day, family in the community decide, you know, we're going to host a just a rally of the community to try to go look for Mark. Everybody just come over. We're going to just disperse. We're going to go look for him. The police come over. They, you know, they call William to let them know that they're going to come over as well. And so when the police, you know, arrive, Mark calls Shelton's father and says, hey, I'm going to come help. I want to come help. Look for Mark. So oh, wait, he just cussed him out. Last, I mean, yesterday. Psycho behavior. OK. Right. Completely new Mark today. And so he's saying, hey, I'm going to come over and I'm going to help look for him. And so Shelton's father's like, yeah, great. Come over. He calls the police and he's like, listen, Mark is coming over. And I had a very hostile conversation with him yesterday. I really think that you guys should come over and just maybe talk to him, see what's going on. So just a little bit of background on Mark. Mark and Shelton were really, really good friends. And that's why Shelton was the best man in his in his wedding, in his upcoming wedding. And Shelton's friends, Shelton and Mark's friends, they say that in the months leading up to Shelton's disappearance, Mark was acting very strange. Like they noticed that he just started to exhibit some extreme paranoia type behavior. And so they thought that this was very odd. They weren't sure like what this was all about, but his friends didn't think that Mark could do anything to Shelton. Like they didn't think that he would have anything to do with his disappearance, but they did, you know, note that something is off. Something is weird about Mark. He's not. And that would also explain, right? Like this very weird behavior in the matter of days between his conversations with Shelton's father. Yeah. And I mean, he was even saying things like just kind of to give y'all odd, right? Like he was saying things like, my friends are trying to kill me because I, I can't recall uh, Shelton's friend who was getting married, his name, but they were all college. At one time, they were all college roommates. Right. So um, he would tell <clears throat> Shelton and would tell the guy who was getting married, he would say to them, hey, you know, my car is trying to kill me. And, you know, I mean, what do you say? to Right. Them? Like, no, it's not. Or Shelton's trying to kill me. And it's like, no. No, he's not. No, so I'm the, not. Yeah, so I think you're right to your point. I think it does kind of like it's a nod to the the fact that maybe that's why his conversation with his father was so odd. Right, mm-hmm. right. So the police do question Mark when he arrives at the house, but they weren't able to really connect Mark to anything. You know, it just, it was kind of like, okay, he's just has this strange behavior. I, there's not much we can do here. So time went on and they, you know, really find nothing in connection with Shelton's disappearance. Shelton's family offers a reward for $10,000 for any information related to the disappearance of Shelton, but nothing comes up. Remember his friend that Steph talked about, he ends up getting married. You know, Shelton wasn't there. The family and friends, they're just heartbroken because they don't know what happened to Shelton. Like, there's just no information. But fast forward. Now, that remember, that was in, you know, June of 20 uh, of 2001. Now, fast forward to April 2006. I mean, April 26, 2003. And they finally find Shelton's car. Now, remember, he was driving his brother's car on the night of his disappearance, and it was a 1988 Oldsmobile Regency. This is like a 
old school throw bag. Car. Right, throwback. And they found the car in a parking spot at the Greenbrier apartment complex in Columbia, South Carolina. And the authorities believe that it was parked there since Shelton's disappearance. What? Yeah, like it was just, it was, it, they don't believe that it had been recently moved. They believe that it had been there since 2001. Like, and even if the, I don't know if you, we, the, we watched, um, it's still a mystery on ID if you guys want to check out this episode. But in that, do you remember that they said that like the tires had made grooves like in the concrete? In the concrete. Like it, it was very obvious that this vehicle had been parked here forever for a long time. Gosh. So the pieces are starting to kind of come together for the investigators and they start to take a closer look at Mark. Because remember, Mark is the last one to see him alive, like mm-hmm. the last person. And so one of Mark's neighbors, uh, and I'm going to butcher this name. Friedna. Friedna Wessinger says that they hear a gunshot three, sometime before midnight, like three gunshots. Pop, pop, pop. And they reported walking over to see like, what was that? What happened? And Mark told them that everything is all right. It's just this car had backfired. Okay, Mark. Now, I just, I don't know. And maybe I'm wrong. I've heard cars backfire. I have been, I've been in front of a car that backfired. Mm -hmm. I have been in a car that backfired. Okay. And it does not sound like a gunshot. Yeah, because a gunshot is very distinct. Very distinct. You know what I'm saying? Like, Like, especially from a, from a back, like from the car backfiring. Right, right. It's like almost like a little bit of an exhaust sound. Right, like a, a machinery sound. Right. Okay. And so he's saying, hey, no, everything is good. It was just it was just this car had backfired. Now, but this is the thing about it, guys. This is in 2003. So we are a whole two years in some change. Away from the situation. Away from the situation. So what happened? Okay, so... This is this is what we know about the early morning. Like, if you guys remember, let's go back to kind of like the timeline. So Shelton drops Mark off at his home around 11, between 11, 1130. Now, the neighbor comes forward and says, I heard these back, these what sounded like gunshots to me around midnight. So this would kind of line up. Right. With Shelton being over there. Right. Not only that, but investigators found out that Mark actually was working for a construction company at the time and had access to a a, a digger that, you know, like a backhoe that could like actually dig really deep. And so they were they just began to ponder like, well, OK, what's going on? Right. Right. So what they end up doing is they confront Mark and they say, hey, listen, like what happened? We actually tracked your cell phone with geodata information which by the way if you guys are not familiar with geodata information it will blow your mind yeah I mean, they it, at this point in 2023 it's it's i it mean in so 2020 precise. girl but even back here in yeah. tw- in 2003 it was still very precise yes. but in 2023 let me just say you they can tell when you are moving in your house and have your phone in your period. hand period Period. And they can narrow down what phones were in what area 
pinging off of a tower, they can narrow it down to like four phones and know and then rule everybody out based on do you actually know that person? Right. So please don't commit a crime because, baby, you're going to get caught. You're going to get caught. OK, so we had to I had to put that in because like I, I found that out and I was like, mind blown. OK. So anyway, so they were able to pinpoint Mark's uh, Mark's cell phone via geodata and find out that according to Mark, initially he told police that, you know, Shelton dropped him off and that was the end of their night. Right. But they pulled this geodata information and found out that Mark actually was at the Greenbrier apartment complex. You mean the same apartment complex that this vehicle has been sitting for the past two and a half years? That one. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, they confront him with all of this information and, you know, now he's just, you know, he's kind of doing the the get back, right? Like, he's coming up with the excuses. He said, well, you know, what I really meant was is that Shelton dropped me off at home, but then I told him to take me to the apartment complex, and so he took me, and then I left him, and I got in the car with a prostitute, but that didn't work out too great. And, so oh, then, it's a prostitute, so you can't find her and track her and see and if my alibi line And have her find her story. Right. Convenient. So he's like, you know, and so then when that didn't work out too well, then I had my kinfolk and them come pick me up and take me back home. He didn't know why Shelton was going over there or what happened to Shelton. He claims that was his last time. But, you know, his story is changing. Right. And let's be clear. Like, we don't understand what is at the Greenbrier apartment complex. If you guys don't, if that was not clear earlier, there was no connection between... Shelton and the Greenbrier apartment complex. Right. None whatsoever. So why would, why, and Mark can't explain why Shelton wanted to go over there or why he wanted to be dropped off over there as his story is ever changing. Right. So, you know, so investigators, investigator Richardson actually interviewed him and said, hey, you know, let me just ask you a hypothetical question. Is there such thing as an accidental death and well, Mark asked this question to the investigator. I'm sorry. He's like, you know, is there such thing as accidental death in the state of Cal- you know South Carolina? And so, investigator Richardson is like, I mean, yeah. You know, do you want to tell me something? You know, right. what I mean? so you you want do you want to explain why you want to know that? And he then says, well, how can I explain getting rid of rid of a body? So, you know, at this point, you this know, this is what he said, people, friends concerning his friend, Shelton. And then, you know, so, of course, the investigators are digging at this point. They're like, come on. Accidents happen all the time. What happened? You can explain this. Get this off your chest. You feel better. And then he says, man, I can't do this. Like, I helped look for him. He was my friend. Like, he was right on the cusp. Uh, probably confessing. Right. He was like, I helped his family look for look for him. Yeah, like and how can I? And he lawyered up. And he lawyered up abruptly. Yeah. I mean, MD, he did exactly what you he tell did, us I to mean, do. I mean, he did it. He just did it real late in the game. But yeah, he did it. Okay. And, you know, just shy of confessing, the police had enough evidence at this point, right? They had the neighbor's statement. They had his ever-changing um, story. They were able to collect the geodata that placed him at the, you know, the... 
the scene of where the the vehicle was exactly. And so, like they at that point on October fifth, two thousand five. So you, it still took a little while now, right? So on October fifth, two thousand five, they arrest and charge Mark with murder, Shelton's murder, to be exact. On October tenth. 2005, Richardson was granted bond for $100,000. In April 14, 2008, the trial begins at Sumner County Courthouse. Now, the jury is unable to reach a verdict. Seven jurors voted him guilty, and the remaining five voted him not guilty or undecided. Now, MD, before you know, we go any further. OJ Simpson trial was not around 2005, right? And I'm pretty confident OJ Simpson's trial was not around 2005. The reason why I say this is because one of the head investigators of this case in South Carolina said that he believed that it ended up in a hung jury because the OJ Simpson trial had happened. And a lot of black people were just on edge about law enforcement and the um, the integrity of the justice system at the time. And even one of the jurors was, was quoted saying, you know, that black man didn't do it. Talking about Mark Richardson. So as I was kind of like combing through our notes and kind of just like dotting my I's and crossing my T's, I really started to, I was like, this was 2008. Like OJ Simpson's trial wasn't then. Oh no, it was, it was well before, well before, like in the nineties. So I'm not too sure where he was going with that, but I I do think it brings up a good point that sometimes, um, you know, being black and being in the justice system, we don't trust sometimes the, the process um, we cannot trust cops and if, and for good reasons. But unfortunately, I believe in this case, the jury didn't get it right. It wasn't enough people who felt like he was guilty. And I think that has to do with our hesitancy, hesitancy in the justice system. What do you think, MD? For sure, I think that that is definitely something that played a role in this case, but not just this case, in many cases where you want to give the black man the benefit or the black woman or whatever, the benefit of the doubt that maybe there is this underlying conspiracy against them and not, you know, convict them as a result of that. But this, this is what is so strange about that theory as it relates to this particular case is that it was, I understand that a lot more when it's a black defendant and a white victim or a non-black victim. I don't understand that when it is a, de- a black defendant and a, bl- a black, victim. you know, victim. Like that makes zero sense to me. So you allowed this, this black man to get off, not because you were able to say the evidence did not support a verdict. Because to me, that's the only reason why you should not convict. Exactly. Like it would, I could not say beyond a reasonable doubt that he was guilty. So the evidence, therefore, did not, you know, the evidence didn't support a, a ver- that a, a guilty verdict. But for you to say, I could not convict this man because he was black. Not because he didn't do it. 
but because he was black. But the victim was black too. So right. how do you how do you provide justice for for the victim? Right. You have to you have to live up to the standards of what the law was intended to do. You can't. This is not about race. This right. Is about and as a matter of fact, you you make it worse when you go and you perpetrate such a poor. The system is very is not is not well put together honestly like we can't say that we have a perfect system it's not perfect and it is flawed right and and we do need to figure out how to work to make it better right but how do you make it better when you go in and don't do exactly what what we're supposed to do like what the law is is asking us to do they're not doing it but two wrongs don't make a right so in this opportunity where you that's why i encourage everybody to sit on a jury because it is your opportunity to help fix the justice system to ensure that the justice system does get it right so that we don't put people that are innocent behind bars and that we do put those that are guilty behind bars so when you have an opportunity to serve on the jury i encourage you to do so so that you can make a change and here this guy this juror he got it fundamentally wrong absolutely Absolutely. Um, And it's just it was such a shame, like even watching um, some of the tape and watching the family's response to the verdict. I just was like holding my breath, clutching my pearls because you could just see the audible gasp and devastation from the family um, in response to it ending in a hung jury and declaring it a mistrial. Now, he was released and he actually remains. Um, a free man to this day. So the investigators said a couple of things. They said that, you know, they hope to eventually reach retry this. But at the time and even now, they don't feel like they have enough to go back after him because MD, like, right, you want to make sure you like dot all your I's and cross your T's so you don't end up in another mistrial, right? Right. And you want to make sure that you're able to, you know, strategize and figure out, okay, why did we lose that case? And are we able to strategically present a different case or enough of a different case to where a jury is not up in arms or a jury is not confused? And so about what we want them to come to a decision on, right? So when you get a hung jury, basically you were, you were not able to convince all the jurors that this person was guilty. And yeah, you definitely want to dot your I's, cross your T's. And so they may not feel like they are able to do that at this time. And right. maybe they're waiting for some additional evidence to be able to surface or some other witness or something to come forth so that they feel like they have a more rock solid case. Because honestly, this case was circumstantial. And I want to be clear that when I said that this juror got it wrong, I'm not saying that the juror got it wrong because he did not choose to convict. I'm saying he got it wrong because he chose not to convict for the wrong reason. Exactly. So anyway, so the family kind of like regathers themselves and on August 25th, 2011 at Rafting Creek Baptist Church in Rembrandt, South Carolina, they went ahead and had a memorial service for Shelton despite not having his body because they believed at that time and even now that Shelton is no longer living. So MD, tell us a little bit about where they are now in the case and you know we can dig into what we can do um to 
Support the family. Support the family, absolutely. So in 2018, Shelton's sister launches a Finding Shelton Sanders on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to raise awareness about her brother's case. I think it's so essential to to explain that this family has not lost hope in finding out what happened to Shelton, but specifically in just being able to bury him. They do believe, like Steph said, that, you know, he is deceased, but they want to be able to bring him home. You know, put them in a proper burial site. So billboards in January 2021 went up um, in South Carolina. They have a $25,000 reward for any information concerning the disappearance of Shelton. 20 years later, friends and family still gather at Sanders' home to honor and remember him. They have increased the reward over the years from $25,000. It is now currently $50,000. Uh, for any information that would lead to, you know, finding out what happened to Shelton. Because somebody somewhere knows. Oh, yeah. And even if you, you know, and it's one of those things where you may not know, you may not feel like you know the key information. Like, I was the one that killed him. Or Mark definitely did it. Or Mark definitely did it. And it was somebody else. You may just have seen something or heard something. Very much like Mark's neighbor. That just allows you to piece things together. Maybe you were in the apartment complex that day. And you saw them get out of the car. Or you saw something that just kind of was odd to you. Odd behavior. So the family's efforts to find um, answers is evident all over South Carolina. They have utilized flyers, billboards, t-shirts, masks, and any other eye-catching way to spread awareness of this case. You know, uh, Shelton's sister, she made a statement. She said, he has my whole world, she said, and he still is. He was her whole world. I'm sorry. He was my whole world, and he still is. And she said that she will dedicate her entire life to finding her brother, um, and so this case uh, did catch the attention of former Dallas Cowboys Emmett Smith. Woo Okay, I'm um, sorry. So he uh, also recorded a video message offering prayers for the family and urging the public, especially Cowboys fans, because we know we are America's team and we're all over, to come together for Shelton. So he he stated, "We just want we just want to know where he is, his remains." Uh, that was Shelton's father. That's what he told Dateline uh, on the show that Dateline did. Then we can finally, finally bring him home to his family. That's what we're asking for. So anyone with information about Shelton's case or the whereabouts of his remains, we ask that you call the Richland County Sheriff's Office at 803-576-3000 or the Shelton Shander, Shelton. Sanders information hotline at 803-427-4209. That information will also be in the show notes. Yes, 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 yes. And I thought what was remarkable, one statement um, that the family, um, his sister, Willa Vera, said to Dateline, she said, we've forgiven anyone who has had any dealings with the murder or disappearance of my brother. We just want to bring him home to a proper burial spot where he belongs. And I thought that was deep on so many levels. Yeah, the fact that she says, hey, we've already forgiven you. We just want to know where he is. Yes. And at yes. that point, what can you say to that? That's so powerful. Mm-hmm. And I hope, and I believe that 
they will find some, they can and will find some information, especially the more that we bring awareness to this case, which is why we chose that case. Absolutely. And you can also stay in touch with everything Willavaria and the family is doing. Um, there, It's Finding Shelton Sanders on all platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So make sure you guys tap in and remember that Shelton was last seen June 20th, 2021 in Mark Richardson's home. So that is our first case. MD, take us into our second. So our second case is not really about a missing person, but it's about a massacre with no answers. And that's the title of this case. It concerns Jane, Annabelle, and Isabella. Annabella and Isabella Curia. You can find more if you want to watch this. You can find it on Still a Mystery Season 6, Episode 3. And also go to unsolved.com. That's where we got most of our information. So after the the death of Jane Correa's husband, she moved, she moved from Kenya to Georgia with her three children, Isabella, who was 19, Annabella, who was 16, and Jeremy, who was seven. And they moved to and landed in Powder Springs near Atlanta. It's a suburb near Atlanta. I've never heard of it, but have you, Steph? No. No. Okay. So, but it's a a suburb near Atlanta and that's where they moved from Kenya. Now, Jane- Were they just seeking like a better life or new opportunities because her husband died? Well, what she stated in her um, trip, you know, to get over here, Mm -hmm. I don't know why I can't think of that word, but- and I want to say deportation or just relocation. Relo- yeah, to papers. Get, relocation papers to get over here was that she was seeking um, uh, asylum because she didn't agree with the mutilation of of women and children and gen- their genitalia. Yes. Oh, yeah, because that's a big thing. And so she was very vocal about her, you know, opposition to that. And, you know, if you know anything about that, and I know very little, I've seen some things I've, I've, there is a girl on TikTok that I like to watch. I don't even know her name, Mm -hmm. but she talks about, she was, she was mutilated and she talks about just that practice and how, if you are vocal against that, you can't be there. Like you literally need to relocate, relocate. And that's exactly what Jane uh, Curia did. She relocated and she sought asylum here and we allowed her to move here Mm -hmm. and she was known for her smile her kindness and her bubbly demeanor she was a hard-working woman and that makes so much sense to me as a single woman single mother you know you really kind of have no choice but to be a hard worker and make things happen her husband died and so she had to be the parent for her child her children yeah her children were also very close the daughters took really good care and spoiled Jeremy, who was the youngest. Isabella was actually in college. Annabella was in high school, and she was also known to be very active in the church. And Jeremy loved basketball, and he actually had hopes to actually go back to Kenya to play. Oh, cool. Now, um, July 29, 2007, it was a normal Sunday, right? Like typical family day. The cousins... Um, 
there was a cousin named PK. He was around the age of Jeremy, a little bit older than Jeremy, but they played together outside that day. And Jane and her sister-in-law, Lucy, they were cooking in the kitchen and making good old Sunday dinner. Just, you know, so typical. I can like see this in my head because we live it every day, right, Steph? Like this is black culture to go to church and after church, you get together with family, have Sunday dinner. But on Monday, which was the next day, Nobody was able to get in contact with Jane. Lucy, her sister-in-law, she's calling. She's leaving several messages. So is Diana, who is Jane's niece. They're calling because it's not, it's very atypical to not be able to get in contact with Jane, Mm -hmm. specifically because there was family in town from Kenya. Right. And was PK still there or did he leave? Yeah, no, PK was still there. His mom actually dropped him off that day. And, um, you know, so that he could just hang out with his cousins. And so he's there, which is also very typical of black black family. Oh, yeah. Can we ask me that night? Right. It's the summer, right? It's July. So I don't have to go to school on, on Monday. I'm going to spend the night. It's This is what we're doing. And so nobody's able to get in contact with her. And they're calling Monday. They're calling Tuesday. Mm. And here comes Wednesday. They still have not been able to get in contact with her. And Lucy's like, okay, enough is enough. Diana, come on. We need to go to Jane's house just to check on her. We need to do a welfare check. So they arrive at the house and they see that Isabella and Jane's car is actually in the driveway. So it's like, okay, well, maybe they're here. Maybe maybe they're sleep. Just, or... Yeah, maybe they're just not answering the phone. I don't know. You know, people have a right to not answer the phone. So Diana walks to the back of the house, though, and she notices that the sliding door is open. So she puts her foot in the door to kind of see, like, what's going on? Like, to see... You know, kind of like hesitant, probably. Yeah, like, like this door is open. I am not trying to just walk in on something, but at the same time, I want to see what's going on. And as soon as she does, she notices a pool of blood on the floor. So she immediately steps back out. She calls 911, and the police, you know, arrive. Actually, one police officer arrives first. When he mm-hmm. walks in, he sees th- this just unbelievable scene. And so then he calls for backup. He calls the ambulance. He calls everybody. So, like, all the first responders get there. And what do they find, Steph? It's an absolute massacre inside. Jane, Isabella, Annabella are deceased. Jeremy and PK are unconscious and just really clinging on to life. Now, multiple blows were, like, they had multiple blows to all of their heads. Obviously, some some damage had been done. They were viciously attacked, and there is actually no sign of forced entry. And we know here on the show, you know, the first thing investigators want to do, like they want to see, was this a robbery gone wrong? What happened? You know, they have to look for those type of things. So that immediately suggests that maybe, possibly, the person knew them. Right, right. So, okay, so they they... Continue to collect evidence. Um, they there's a lot of blood in the kitchen, and there's an indication that Jane actually put up a struggle. She fought for her life, and it seemed as if she was the primary target, right? Like the kids were just a, you know, like they were there, and so because of that, they I guess had to die, you know. Right. But it was totally meant for Jane. Now, Isabella was actually found on the stairs. Annabella was seemed to be stepping out of her room when the assault took place. And PK and Jeremy were actually attacked while sleeping in their beds. Horrible. That just makes me so mad. Yes. 
because how vicious and like evil you have to be do you have to be evil seriously anyway pk and jeremy were able to survive because when they were struck on their heads they their heads were on the pillows so you know it was able the blow to their head wasn't as impactful had they been on like a hard surface right so to speak Mm -hmm. so the police are able to determine that the object was used um that was used was anywhere between 12 to 15 inches long like what object is that right i don't know i mean i have some ideas but like they don't hammer? really they you know they they end up saying also that that the object like they believe that it was forked at the end oh. and like they don't really explain that they don't explain it on the doc- documentary and they didn't explain it on unsolved.com, but they do believe that it was forked on the end. So mm-hmm. then I I begin to think, well, maybe a pitchfork. Why? Right. But then they also speculate that it was like the object was made of lead or was stainless steel. So then that like rules that out. So like, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, what is this? What kind of, what is the object? Oh, MG. Okay. So there was no blood transfer from one scene to the next. Which is extremely odd. Like, so just so that you guys understand what that means, right? Like, the way that the detective explained this is that, you know, they believe that Jane was obviously the primary target and that she was attacked. I don't, I don't, they don't necessarily, she was attacked first, but let's just pretend like she was attacked first Mm -hmm. and that the, 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 the assailant attacked her. And didn't try as bloody as that scene was, because she fought back, right? Because she actually was aware of of being a t- she didn't get caught off guard, mm-hmm. and she, but there was no tracking from that scene in the kitchen to the stairs where Isabella was attacked, and they believe that Isabella was attacked and unaware, like she was walking up the stairs and, and got was attacked, attacked from and behind. she fell at, mm-hmm. to the bottom of the stairs. Now there's no tracking from her scene to to Annabella. Annabella. And there's no tracking from Annabella's scene to PK and Jeremy. So like this is like the police are like they have never seen something like this. I mean it's crazy because if they are all being attacked with the same object or I mean do they have gloves on? Like it's so many things that have is it multiple uh, perpetrators? Like what is happening? Like this is just it just seems way too calculated. Um so there was no blood evidence leaving the house either. Not on the grass, driveway, nothing, no prints, no DNA evidence from the scene. And for me when I hear that, like that sounds like a professional hit. Yeah. For sure. Either a professional hitter, it is definitely it is definitely meditated, premeditated, and it seems to be multiple perpetrators. It doesn't appear that it could be one person. Yeah. Like and, and you wanna say it's a premeditated hit, but then what it's so gruesome and so violent that it seems passionate that it would have to be somebody that they knew. That's what it, it would appear. Right. Well, the timeline of events leading to this massacre is that Isabella, they were able to kind of pin down when they felt like this took place. Isabella looked at an email at midnight on July 31st. See, this goes back to this geodata. They're able to like, exactly. you know, t- tell when you last looked at something. So she, they're able to say that at, on July 31st at midnight, she looked at an email. Now, a phone call comes into the Korea house and it goes unanswered at 3.30 a.m. on July 31st. So the police speculate that the murder likely took place on July 31st between midnight and 3 a.m. So this would make sense as to why the neighbors don't hear 
this right. like, early morning massacre. Because yeah. the way that they say Jane fought back, her struggle would have been so violent and loud that although like PK and, and Jeremy was probably quiet, but Jane would have at least been Jane loud. And, and Annabella. Right. And so that makes sense as to why like neighbors didn't hear anything and didn't see anything either. Now, the police go through all of Jane's and all actually all of the victims' phone records, and they actually track back 60 days. And they notice something really interesting with Jane's phone calls is that she has a very extensive conversation or extensive communication with a friend from the church named Patrick. And Jane and Patrick, they communicated all day long. I'm talking about they called each other between 12 to 15 times a day. I mean, that's a lot of that times. was a little boo. Well, see, that's the thing. Everyone knew that Jane and Patrick were friends from church, but nobody knew that they were more than friends. Like nobody thought that they were more than friends. But those phone calls sure should sure suggest something different. Right. Because but the reason why nobody thought this was because Patrick was married and mm. had children. Child. Now, Patrick talked to Jane every day. And he last talked to Jane on July 30th at 10 p.m. And after that, he never called her again. Now, this is strange, y'all. Okay, like, listen, friends. Like, this is so strange. You could really kind of just play that off. as like, okay, well, he was just busy, like, whatever. Maybe she called him more. Maybe, maybe it's not a big deal. But this is so strange because only the killer knows that she's dead. Like, only the killer knows that. Now, remember, she was alive on July 29th. This was Sunday dinner. Okay. On Monday, July 30th, he talked to her and he talked to her the last time at 10 p.m. But he didn't call her on July 31st at all. At all? At all. And he didn't call her on August 1st when her body was found. Why? So the police, they, you know, they want to ask him. They want to know. What's T, Patrick? What is the. Dang, what you doing, boy? He says, I don't know. I don't know why I didn't call her. He has zero answers. (laughs) Now, what's so interesting about Patrick is that he actually offers to the police on the night after the bodies are discovered. So before they had even interrogated him, before they even knew Patrick existed, the detective that that was the main police officer on the case he was so this case he describes as being i think every police officer has that one case that just sticks with them and this is that case for him okay and so even after that uh like they discover the bodies that night the family actually holds a memorial that same night that the bodies are found so on august 1st so the the detective he goes because he's thinking well maybe i'll see somebody you know interesting a person you know of interest or like i can just learn more about the family and see because they really did believe that jane likely knew her assailant because the door was open sure so he goes to this you know memorial and patrick they don't know who patrick is at this time They haven't gone through these phone records yet. And Patrick comes and approaches the police. And out of nowhere, he tells the police, you know what? It's probably the Mungigi gang that (laughs) killed Jane and her daughters. What? And the police are like, what? Who is the gang? Who are you, First of all, who are you and who is this Mungigi gang? And he's like, this is this gang out of Kenya. And he's like, and they're the ones that killed Jane's husband. And so, you know, it's likely that they came up here to finish the job. 
Now, this is strange because, again, like the police don't even know who this guy is. Like, who are you? Patrick introduces himself and he's like, yeah, you know, I'm just a friend of Jane. We're friends from church. She watches my two young boys at times. And sometimes I come over and do yard work for her because she's a single mother. So I'm just trying to help out. And I'm just telling you what I know. So the police are like looking at him like, we really think this is weird. And just it seems like Patrick is trying to throw them in like a different direction than the case is actually going. And so the police are like, OK, cool. They look into it, though, y'all. Like they go and pull the records to find out how Jane's husband died. And guess what? What? He died of pneumonia, y'all. I'm finna go. <laughs> Of pneumonia. So why would Patrick lie? Like, why would he lie about this? And Patrick, like, you're inserting yourself into this investigation. Inserting himself. That's what typically perpetrators do. Right. Right. Classic signs of the actual perpetrator. But they don't have anything concrete to hold on to Patrick. Because remember, there was no forensic evidence really at this crime. And, you know, what I really thought was interesting, and it's not on the actual documentary. You have to go to unsolved.com to really kind of read through this. But what the detective talks about on unsolved.com is that there was so much blood evidence at this house. And it's likely that the way that Jane fought back, that the perpetrator was actually probably injured or like got a cut or something. And, but even though his blood may be, may be, you know, may have, he may have bled at the scene because there was so much of Jane's blood. It, it washed out of any potential evidence of the actual assailant's blood. Right. And I want to say that I the case that I did when MD was on vacation, I referenced this as well. And your crime scene can be so saturated with the victim's blood that it literally overpowers any blood that could possibly be there from anyone else. That is a thing because, you know, they bleed out. And right. so because of that, <laughs> right. you know, their blood is everywhere. And she bled out for a couple days, right? Like, well, a day, a full day at least. Right. So they turned to the surviving victims, PK and Jeremy. Now, PK and Jeremy were still in a coma in the very beginning stages of this investigation. PK regains his consciousness a week later, but he, he doesn't recall anything. Like he doesn't. He doesn't really remember anything that's going to help the police. And Jeremy, he takes a few more weeks. He was actually injured way more than PK was. Um, And when he wakes up, he has to learn that his whole family is deceased. Oh. And he also doesn't remember anything. He just remembers going to bed and waking up in the hospital. So... The family flies the three bodies of Jane, Isabella, and Annabella back to Kenya to be buried. And the police, they're just trying to find answers. And there's not many answers to find. Right. And so while they're gone, a woman by the name of Elizabeth took over helping, you know, get everything prepared and, you know, together, get the estate together, get all the things together after the murders. Now, Elizabeth is not family, and MD and I don't know too much about African culture, so if, you know, any of our fellow African listeners will tell us if this is, you know, commonplace or not, like... Yeah, the the one, the one of, I think it was Lucy made a statement on the documentary that this was actually not culturally appropriate. Oh, okay. 
I mean, I didn't think it would be, but you know. I just wanted <laughs> I mean, to it's not culturally appropriate even in our culture. I mean, absolutely not. Anyway, so she attends the same church as Jane. Um and she begins to just have that takeover spirit, as I like to say. <laughs> and she got really close with Jane's grandmother and gained her trust. And because of that, she was able to move freely within doing a lot of things that she had no business doing um, in terms of the estate. And she starts to manipulate her way even into Jeremy's life, which is so creepy. There's so many things that are disturbing about this case. We'll review at the end. So family flew home to Kenya um, and without consent, she actually removed the name of family members to care for Jeremy. So crazy. And she petitioned to be Jeremy's guardian. And one. And one. So when Jeremy gets out of the hospital, he goes to live with Elizabeth and Jane's grandmother. She ain't just made her way into, into the whole family chat. Exactly. Jeremy describes Elizabeth as controlling and more like a principal than a mother. Elizabeth sells Jane's house, car, and family belongings. She allegedly put it in a trust, but never allows Jeremy to have access to those funds because she spent it all. I'm going to just put that out. I mean, right. They didn't say that, but that's what that is. Like, that's what that is. Like, you allegedly put this money in this trust. And I put, I said allegedly, because on the documentary, it said that she did put the money in a trust. But, like, where where are the receipts? Right. Run me the receipts, Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Okay. You're lying. So the police are are the the police are suspicious of Elizabeth, but she was never named a suspect. And I want to be clear that neither was Patrick, which stumps me. <laughs> stumps. He was also not named a suspect, so they never really had a suspect. Um, the police are just really left just trying to scramble and like get any clues that they have, and so they turn to the last two clues that they're just that they really kind of. Think that is going to be about anything And one of those clues is a handwritten note That they found on the dining room table At the crime scene of Jane's uh, home And these notes had a bunch of numbers Like written down on it And if you totaled all those numbers up It equaled $5,000 Now the reason why Or $5,000 And the reason why that is You know Pretty alarming to the police Is because they learned That Patrick requested a loan from Jane For And he admits that Jane gave him a loan for $5,000. But he states that Jane was never pressuring him or pushing him to pay that loan back. Like, it was never a thing. Like, you know, he just makes it seem like it wasn't a big deal. You know, yeah, she loaned me $5,000, but yeah, I was going to pay her back and it wasn't a big deal. But the police note that, you know, when they interviewed Patrick, he was so super calm. Like, he, he didn't seem... Anxious or scared to talk to the police He was very relaxed Mm -hmm. And he he did what he needed to do To answer their questions But the police never It never set well with the police About him but they never had enough To like hold him Now the second piece of evidence that they found Was actually two miles away from the crime scene They found bloody hand towels Like on the street Two miles away on the day of the crimes, on the day of like the scene when they discovered the bodies and they were able to put together a full DNA profile from those towels and they ran it against the Curia family. So, you know, Jane, Isabella, Annabella, PK, and nobody was a match. They also ran it against Patrick and he wasn't a match. Mm. 
but they do believe that those bloody towels were from the crime scene. This makes sense to the police because they believe that there was more than one person likely involved in this massacre. So like going back to Steph's point about the transfer of blood, it likely is because there's more than one person. The reason that there wasn't that transfer. And so it also makes sense. It doesn't rule Patrick out. It doesn't say Patrick was not a part of the crime. It just means that he wasn't the person that picked up the bloody towels. Right. Right. It was somebody else. It could have been somebody else. It could have been somebody else. Which would explain, you know, how there, you know, wasn't any transfer, right, between the victims. But the police, they're not able to really do anything with these bloody towels, even though they are able to get a DNA profile off of it, even though they believe that it's tied to the crime scene. You know, they're just hoping that there's advancement in science technology that allows for some answers in the future. So they preserve this evidence, which is really great. You know, they preserve it and they're hoping that they can enter this test or enter this DNA profile into a genealogy database. Now, this is the same type of thing that they did in other infamous crimes like the Golden State Killer. Right. right. So that's how they found the Golden State Killer. If you're a true crime fan, you know about this. They were able to put it in a genealogy genealogy database like 23andMe not necessarily 23andMe, but like a 23andMe. And then they pull, they're able to find like the genealogy family tree. And then they're able to wean it down to, you know, where people live and who could have possibly been there. And so that's how they were able to find the Golden State Killer. And that's how they're hoping they will be able to find this perpetrator. So today... The yeah, today the family still wants answers, yeah. obviously. Um, Lucy is still, who is her sister-in-law, mm-hmm. is still very bitter and angry. The family is in shock that someone was able to kill three people brutally and get away with it. Jeremy now has a son of his own. He's fully grown, and he wishes his mother and sisters were here to know him. He feels he missed out on having a family and hopes to give that to his son. And prayerfully he can. Right. So that's our two cases. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of Shelton's case, MD, I know we really don't feel like we can come up with the takeaway, but what's something... I don't know. What's, what do you feel about that entire case? Just, you know, one thing that like really stuck with me was his father and how the night of his disappearance, the night that he goes missing is the same night that he wakes up from a vivid dream that Shelton was screaming. And I just, you know, I just think it's, it's amazing that uh, parents can be so in tune with their children like that. I think it's, I believe it. And, um, you know, I don't have a takeaway about that. I just think, you know, you, you need to follow your instinct on that. You know, I know he, he ended up waking up and um, just kind of ruling it out. And I don't blame him for that because I think we do that. We often do yeah. that. So many of us. But just learning to listen to, you know, what God could potentially be saying to us in like drink through dreams and through, you know, it's just things that, you know, if you're like, I just don't feel settled. My spirit doesn't feel settled about this Mm -hmm. and just kind of I'd rather not feel settled about something, track it down and find out that I had no reason to feel unsettled than to 
not feel settled about something and just write it off as like I'm just being ridiculous yeah I definitely agree um and I just I feel like not not so much a takeaway but uh definitely just admiration for the family in general that they were that they are so resilient um and steadfast because I think um in these cases of the missing um there is no peace you know they have no peace they had they don't they don't get to have a funeral for Shelton and I think those are things that we oftentimes take for granted the fact that we get to bury our dead and that is you know that brings the the family peace because I, I've closure. said before, yeah, it gives them closure. closure in the sense of now I can really kind of begin this grief journey. Um, they're settled, they're at peace. My loved one is at peace, and so I just wanted to, you know, just just say I admire the Sanders family. Um, his mother says she will never stop looking for her son, and their resili- resiliency period is something that I admire, and it made me, you know, actually just appreciate even though I have lost family members close family members the fact that I was able to to bury them that's a blessing we don't think about that so for sure what's your takeaway for the Korea family golly that that just bothers me it like eats me up inside because I feel like Patrick may have something to do with it I feel like that Elizabeth lady, like, right. where did you and come I, from? And she she, she was friends with Patrick from church. So, so, you know, you wonder, were they in what, cahoots? Right. What is happening? And $5,000, three people, bro? Actually, you were targeting five, right? Right. Yeah, I, I don't really have a takeaway for that either. It's really difficult. It's just so infuriating that... Some you know to not to be so close and not be able to get the answers that you you want and I think the biggest takeaway from this is that we need to shed light on cases like these because that's how people can realize they know information right like that's right. how you realize maybe I do know something that I didn't think was important I didn't know it was a, a you know in even a key detail that would matter and that one little thing can unlock so many things could like just be the key to unlock the case and burst the case wide open and that's why we bring cases like this to the surface that's why we don't always talk about the most popular cases and that we try to find these cases that you may not have ever heard of because if we can bring just a little bit more awareness to you about these cases then maybe we can help these families get the closure that they so desire Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I don't think we have any announcements, y'all, but we're back on track. We have the next case. So we are definitely looking forward to seeing y'all next week because that case is very interesting. I was about to let something go, but I'm not. Yeah, buckle up and get ready. Buckle up, buttercup. All right, y'all. We will see everyone next week make sure you rate and review leave us some comments on our instagram page you can actually drop us a message if you just like really love the episode we love those um so share if you care with families and friends and until next time this is murder in the black bye